Thank you, Peter, for coming on and joining me on the podcast today. It's great to have you, and I appreciate you taking the time. You are the uh, founder and executive chairman of the XPRIZE Foundation, which has run over $250 million worth of competitions. Uh, you're also the executive founder of Singularity University. You started over 25 companies in health tech, space, venture capital, and education. Uh, you're the vice chairman and co-founder of a couple of public companies, Cellularity and Vaccinity. The laundry list goes on and on. Uh, currently, you're working on Fountain Life, co-founder of Bold Capital Partners. Incredibly active, and in, in addition to all of that, you've done uh, you've written four best-selling books: Abundance, Bold, The Future Is Faster Than You Think, and most recently, Life Force. Um, so it's it's great to be able to talk with you. I think you're one of the most optimistic people in the world when it comes to painting a positive picture of the future. So I've been a fan for a long time. Um, I'd Thanks, like to Jake. start. Yeah, no problem. I'd like to start. Uh, in sort of a you know a unique time in your life, you uh, went to some great schools and studied some difficult courses. Um, at one of those times, you were in med school at Harvard, and uh, you were watching. I think this is in the '80s, I guess. You're watching a documentary on some of the longest living uh, sea animals in the world, and you realized you know sharks live a few hundred years, and you asked yourself, you know, why can't humans live that long? How did that or, you know, maybe things before that lead to this interest that you've sort of maintained to this day and seem to be accelerating, which is uh, your involvement in longevity and how can humans live longer, healthier lives? Yeah, the the television show it was a documentary and it showed like uh, one species of whales, bowhead whales could live 200 years and Greenland sharks could live four or 500 years and have babies when they're 200 years old. And I was like, okay. If they can live that long, why can't we? And it was then that I kind of realized it's either a hardware problem or a software problem. And we're going to learn how to address those problems. And the idea that we are uh, limited to some particular uh, life expectancy is something I sort of rebel against. And I'm, you know, the evidence, I think, we're beginning to truly understand why we age, um, how to slow it, stop it. And there's a lot of conversation and research around reversing it now. If you think about the fact that when you're born, you get 3.2 billion letters from your mother and from your father. And those same that same software, that same DNA is the same at birth, at, at 20, at 50, at 80, at 100. So if you've got... Um, you know, the same code, why do you look different? And it isn't the genes you have, it's which genes are on and which genes are off. It's the epigenome for the Greek word, epi for above. And so what we're beginning to understand is how do you, how do you control that epigenome and perhaps how do you reverse it to an earlier stage of life when you had um, a six pack and were in better health and had no inflammation, et cetera. So there's a lot of work going on right now. Um, it's, uh, you know, my first 20, 30 years of my life were really focused on opening up the space frontier, which is a very optimistic vision of humanity's future, sort of Star Trek, if you would. And the last decade has really been committed to how do we, how do we get to that future? How do we extend our healthy lifespans, 20, 30 years? And then with that extra few decades, how do you intercept the next bridge to live even longer and healthier lives? Yeah, it's interesting. You, uh, you know, you've had this sort of parallel interest in longevity or healthcare at large and space. Going back to your college days, I think when you graduated, you went and started um, 
your MD at, at Harvard, and then I think dropped out for a little bit to go back to <laughs> MIT and get a graduate degree in uh, aerospace engineering. And then you went back and finished the MD at Harvard. So you've sort of been navigating between space and something along the lines of longevity for quite a long time. I'm curious, you know, spending the first few decades of your career very focused on space, um, what was the nature of the transition to really over this last decade, like you mentioned, double down on longevity? It seems like space was sort of unbelievably early when you were first into it. There wasn't SpaceX. There wasn't a whole lot of progress since, you know, the time when you were a kid. Uh, and now it's sort of seems to be picking up steam, whereas longevity now feels like super far away still to a lot of people. It's like, we're talking about it, but, you know, it seems like it's decades away, not years away. Was that part yeah. of the transition, just that it's like so far in front and those are the things you like to work on? I guess I guess I like challenges. Um, but yeah, I mean, when I got involved in space and I was born in the 60s and it was uh, the Apollo program, you know, I, I got to... Uh, experience the tail end of the Apollo program and then Star Trek, which I call that optimistic documentary about the future. Those two really inspired me. And I wanted to become an astronaut, went to medical school, make my parents happy, I actually finished medical school to make my parents happy and then did the aerospace stuff as a, uh, a, a gift for myself. And I pursued space and started a bunch of companies there, um, a university, International Space University. And then it was the X Prize that I launched in 1996 that was won in 2004 that really kicked off private spaceflight. And I got to know Bezos early on through one of my first organizations uh, called Students for the Exploration and Development of Space, SEDS, and then met uh, Elon in 2000 when he had just sold PayPal to eBay or 2001. And, um, you know, pushed space as hard as I could I think having the X Prize get one really was a culmination there. You know, uh, Jeff and Elon came to space with billions of dollars in their pocket, uh, so to speak, um, and have done an extraordinary job. Uh, and I think that I could check that box that I had done what I could to move that that whole vision of space forward. But I realized it was not going anywhere near as fast as I wanted it to. Um, you know, I thought we would be on the moon permanently by now. We would be on Mars by now. We'd be mining asteroids by now. And uh, it's not that we can't. It's that the capital investments and the tech uh, haven't been really moved forward. We could do those things and we will do those things. But the timeline is decades to the right. And so, you know, two things or three things occurred that moved me into the longevity field. The one was the realization that if I really wanted to see this future in space that I've been dreaming about, I'm going to need extra time on this planet. You know, I need an extra 30, 40, 50 years. The second thing was, hey, I'm getting older and I want to be in my best shape and I want to be able to like um, uh, experience all these things myself, not through the eyes of someone else. And then finally, the realization was I'm an entrepreneur. I've built now 26 companies. Some have been great successes. Some have been abject failures, a lot you know, on their way, hopefully up and to the right. Uh, but longevity was truly one of the biggest business opportunities on the planet. And 
So I started getting involved in building companies in the biotech and health tech space. And it's been a blast and I love it. And I think, you know, health is your greatest wealth. So, um, yeah, so those are the, those are the forces that have led me there. I'll go back and play in space again, but I'll do it with a couple of hundred million dollars of disposable income because that's what it takes to do anything right now in the space business. Yeah, you can do that with a hundred something million dollars disposable income and maybe age a hundred and something as well. And you'll be uh, in peak <laughs> physical fitness and doing everything you want to do. That's the goal. That's the goal. So uh, I think it's it actually takes a, a tremendous amount of courage to, uh, I mean, to believe in a lot of these things that you believed in over the years in space, while maybe not happening as quickly as one would like. There's certainly been, I think it would be hard to argue that there hasn't been a ton of progress in the last 10, 20 years, largely thanks to people like yourself and to Elon and Jeff and and some others. Um, and, you know, the reason it takes courage is because these things can easily like not pan out. And when you sort of start believing in them, which I think is like a prerequisite to making them happen, um, they're out of the money bets, you know, like they're not, most people don't think they're going to happen for a reason. I think you have this saying that everything is sort of like a crazy idea until it's, you know, a breakthrough. Um, and, yeah. or, you know, I, I butchered that a little bit, but some quote it's like okay. that. It's, it's, it's close. I, I, I say the day before something is truly a breakthrough, it's a crazy idea. Exactly. If it, was, if it wasn't a crazy idea, it would be a breakthrough. It'd be an expected incremental progression, but a real breakthrough is, is previously thought of as crazy. Right. And so I think, you know, longevity is like the most extreme example of this, because it's actually like your own life or the lives of, you know, loved mm -hmm. ones and, and things like that, where you actually in order to sort of motivate oneself to work on stuff like this, at least with the idea that, um, you know, you can influence your own longevity and, and health span, you sort of have to convince yourself that there's, you know, a, a reasonable enough probability that it's worth working on. And I'm curious, you know, uh, I'm I'm a bit younger than you. Like my parents are, are roughly your age. And I think about this a lot. Like um, for people, you know, in their 50s, 60s, even 70s, when you hear people like, you know, George Church or um Kurtzweil who are talking about we're we're a decade away, we're two decades away, you're sort of like right on the cutting edge. And and for, you know, for someone like me, it's like, well, I can let this play out for 10 or 20 years and sort of see how the progress goes and and worry about that a little bit later and try to be healthy in the interim. But how have you sort of summoned the courage to say, you know, screw it, I'm, I'm going to work on this longevity stuff and try to get, you know, try to preserve my health in sort of more natural cutting edge ways as, as long as I can to get to that point of, you know, longevity escape velocity? Uh, great questions, Jake. And, and yeah, I think I, I flip the question and say, how could someone not want to do that? Um, so I'm 62 right now and i i feel physically and from a medical uh biometric standpoint i'm in the healthiest i've ever been um and my objective is to keep that as long as i possibly can i don't need to live you know 30 or 40 years at peak i need to live long enough at peak to intercept the breakthroughs coming in the next five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, which will then extend life that much longer and give me access to the next generation of breakthroughs. And you mentioned the idea of longevity escape velocity. Uh, Aubrey de Grey and Ray Kurzweil have sort of coined that, that concept. And it's the idea that 
Um, you know, today for every year that we're alive, we're adding somewhere between a quarter to a third of a year to lifespan, uh, driven by science and medical breakthroughs. And there's going to be a point that at some point in your future, for every year that you're alive, science during that year has added an additional year to your lifespan and maybe a little bit more. And that departs and becomes, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, long living long enough to live forever. Now, I'm not talking about immortality here, but I am interested in adding, you know, breaking through anyone's preconceived notions of 100 years old. I was on stage recently. I run a longevity platinum trip every year. I pulled together, you know, 40 venture capitalist family offices, philanthropists, and we meet the top AI, biotech, health tech scientists in the world. Um, one year on the East Coast, one year on the West Coast. And this year we've been on the East Coast with David Sinclair and George Church. And I asked them the question, is there a limit to human lifespan? Um, you know, we've only seen people living to 120, 121, 122 at max. Can, you know, is there a hard limit? And the answer repeatedly is no, there is not. Um, that we are going to gather the tech and the capability, the knowledge, the science to go and blow through that and extend um, for a, a longer span. So that's what I work towards. Um, uh, you know, what wouldn't someone give for an extra 10, 20, 30 healthy years? Now, I've changed my mindset, my sleeping, my diet, my exercise, my annual diagnostics and therapeutics, my meds, my supplements to maximize getting there. Um, and at the end of the day, I think it's worth it. I feel I have more energy than I've ever had. Uh, so I think there's no downside other than, you know, giving up sweet desserts and sugar for breakfast. Yeah, I think it's a, uh, it's a great point that not only, I mean, on the one hand, you know, maybe you have to make some a few sacrifices, desserts, things like that, like you mentioned, but it's not like you're just doing all of this and trying to be as healthy as you can and get to that point that you sort of need to get to in peak or close to peak physical fitness and health um, just to get there. But if you don't get there, like it's all for naught. Um, rather, you know, you get to enjoy the ride a lot more being healthier and feeling a lot better and having high energy and things like that. So that's on the personal side. And then on working on, you know, radical longevity and co-founding some of these companies you co-founded and helping fund them and things like that. That's where I think you really sort of need to have this conviction that, hey, you know, on the work front, I'm actually not wasting my time here. This is sort of the most noble mission I can go after. And, um, you know, basically the biggest mission on earth, if, if you ask me and, and maybe you uh, as well agree. Uh, so it's sort of a no brainer on that front. But I, I think what's surprising to see or at least took me a while to like wrap my head around is a lot of people, um, you know, there's this term, I'm not sure if you're familiar, called the pro-aging trance. I think Aubrey de Grey came up with that one as well, where basically these, you know, everyone has sort of convinced themselves for whatever reason that like death is good because for all of human <laughs> history, it's been, you know, inevitable, right? Inevitable, yeah, of course. Yeah, and so it sort of makes sense. It's like, if you have no chance to avoid this thing, you sort of tell yourself whatever stories you need to tell yourself to get comfortable with it. But now we're at this point where, hey, you know, maybe, you know, I'm not, we're, again, we're not talking about immortality or whatever, but 
maybe you don't have to die when you're 100. Maybe you don't even have to die when you're 120. Maybe we can get to 150 and beyond. And the only way to do that is to convince enough people that it's possible to work towards it and to fund it and everything like this. So what are some of the biggest concerns that you've encountered with people who are sort of, you know, despite sort of the logic of it, they're just not on board with even trying to live longer, healthier lives? And how do you sort of uh, confront some of those uh, critiques that, that you hear? Yeah, so, I mean, I think the very first critique is uh, I want to enjoy my life and the idea of cutting out, you know, the carbs and the sugar and such, you know, sugar uh, is a pro-inflammatory. It glycosylates proteins. It you know attaches itself covalently to hemoglobin and other and other proteins, and it causes you problems. Um, or I don't, you know, I'd rather watch Netflix and hang on the couch than go to the gym. Um, you know, it takes some level of effort and. One of the challenges is when you're younger and you've got the energy, that's fine. But as you grow older, if you have aches and pains and your energy level is lower, the ability to invest it in um, in, in working out and having the willpower to resist a dessert and so forth. So it's a slippery slope. Um, if you start getting out of shape, um, then it becomes harder to get back into shape. So really maintaining being in shape and having the energy and the willpower is an important sort of prerequisite. And you can get back there. Um, and I've fallen sort of off the wagon, if you would, and then said, nope, nope, back on. And it takes amount. Like right now, uh, there's a group of individuals who are part of my Abundance 360 and Abundance Platinum community who are doing a 22-day no-sugar fast altogether. There's a, a wonderful um, uh, Dr. Guillermo Navarrete uh, out of Miami, who's a member of my community. He runs these 22-day no-sugar fasts. And, and so everybody gets in a WhatsApp group together and basically have a ketogenic diet for 22 days, minimizing any kind of high-glycine foods and sugars <clears throat> and eating really cleanly together. And you lose that addiction after 22 days and you prove to yourself that you can in fact do that a lot of it's willpower in that regard so um anyway that's how i think about it yeah so that that makes sense on some some of the day-to-day -day stuff but on the concept of um you know what if we can make people as you know human populations live so right long. so people worry about overpopulation right yeah. oh my god are we you know we're going to drain the worth of resources. We're going to overpopulate. We already have too many people on the planet Earth. And, you know, I write about this. I'm writing about this in my next book, which is uh, the follow-on to my first abundance book. It's called Scaling Abundance. And listen, the data is very clear that uh, we are heading towards a massive underpopulation of the planet. Uh, 50 years ago, their average number of children per family globally was 5.05. Um, the replacement level is 2.1, you know, to maintain population on earth. And we've gone from 5.05 50 years ago to down to about like 2.3 today. The U S is below the replacement level as is member of a lot of parts of Europe, uh, most of Asia, the only continent that's above the replacement level is Africa. And as we make Africa better educated and healthier, it will start to drop down too. 
So we need people to live longer. We need people to be productive in society to maintain our standards of living. Otherwise, we have a whole new set of problems. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. I think the the overpopulation thing, especially with you know, Elon's been a big proponent of this underpopulation concern for the last couple of years at least. Um, it's gotten a lot more attention, and I think there's a lot less concern around the overpopulation thing. But even Elon himself doesn't seem to be like totally on board with extending human health span. And I think mm. this comes back to that pro aging trance where it's like, um, you know, obviously Elon's like uh, infinitely times smarter than I am. So maybe he just knows something that I don't know. But I think part of sort of what might be impacting his perspective is that there's this idea that, you know, you need to, that older people need to die in order to bring, you know, new ideas into the world. Into the world. There's that old quote about like, science moves one, you know, dead scientist at a time or yeah. whatever it is. And Steve Jobs has the quote about, you know, death being life's change agent. But I don't know that that's necessarily true. Can't we, you know, figure out how to live a lot longer and healthier and then figure out how to sort of push ideas further? You know, I, I, I've had this argument with him and I completely disagree with him. I mean, listen, uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, the heads of McDonald, Douglas, and Boeing and Lockheed didn't have to die for Elon to create SpaceX. He just created a better product, right? You didn't have to have the you know the CEOs of the car companies pass away for him to create Tesla. He just created a better product. I think at the end of the day, we're going to see uh, meritocracy in terms of is your product and what you're doing better. Um, and if it is, it's going to survive. And you know, Elon's ten years younger than I am. And when he's in his early 60s, I'll have this conversation with him again. I guarantee you, he'll be looking forward to uh, enjoying all the pro uh, longevity extending technologies himself. Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, the good news is uh, there are lots of very, uh, you know, wealthy and, and prominent people who are paying huge attention. And, you know, the list goes on. But Bezos founded, I mean, uh, invested in Altos and you've got New Limit, which Brian Armstrong co-founded, a couple other companies that have been around for a bit longer, starting to get, you know, a lot lots more investment. Are you seeing, I guess, how would you compare, you know, you you were very much at the center of the space industry's sort of progression over the last few decades. How do you feel we're doing on the longevity front in terms of funding, teams working on it, things like that? Yeah, I think we're doing amazing. Um Personally, I, I've seen a huge amount of capital. I'm tracking this very carefully. Uh, we're getting ready for an X prize before the end of the year in this field of um, of health health span extension. I uh, can't say much about it right now, but um, uh, what we have as well is a huge amount of wealth that has a a personal stake in living longer. So you're going to, I mean, you can't take it with you. It's like, come on, you know, what are you going to do with your billions? Give it to your kid to ruin their lives? Or do you want to like, you know, help help uh, extend your health and everybody else's health? Um, the other thing is we've got two new or three new buckets of tools coming our way. Um, one is AI is having a massive impact in our understanding. Uh, the second is, of course, all of the biotech technologies from gene editing, um, uh, gene writing and reading, uh, uh, and, and therapeutics, uh, cellular medicine. And then we've got coming in the next few years, a whole set of tech around quantum technologies, quantum chemistry. Uh, and of course, the body is a quantum system. 
So all these things converging are giving us a brand new set of tools to understand why and how we age, how to slow it, stop it, and reverse it. So, um, you know, when I run my longevity platinum trips, I ask people um, in during the program to like, where is your confidence level of getting to, you know, past 120? And as they hear the scientists who are just brilliantly talking about all of the breakthroughs and the science they're doing and the experiments they're doing and what they're doing, um, we see the number, uh, their confidence level going up. And a lot of the work I do is really around mindset. I think your mindset as an entrepreneur is like the most important thing you have. And there is a longevity mindset. If, if you have a pro longevity mindset and you believe that these tech, this tech is likely to be able to extend your life if you're there to intercept it, um, if you truly believe that and you work towards it, then um, you've got a better shot. If you don't believe and you're not working towards it, you diminish your chances. So where is your longevity mindset? You know, and then I in my other parts of my life, it's where's your abundance mindset, your moonshot mindset, your exponential mindset, et cetera. Yeah, I definitely want to talk a little bit a bit more about this uh, sort of mindset development. It seems to be a, a large part of your focus. And I think it is just sort of like upstream of everything else going back to when you wrote the book on abundance, you know, several years ago, that sort of implanted this abundance mindset, maybe in, in a lot more people in the world who previously had more of a scarcity mindset and drove them yeah. from fear to optimism. And everyone can sort of develop their own version of what a positive mindset looks like that's custom to their life. But generally moving from scarcity to abundance and fear to optimism seem like sort of great trends to, um, you know, to, to go on. But uh, you mentioned the X prize and, and, you know, can't wait to see the details of that uh, longevity or, or health span related X prize coming up this year. But this is something you've been doing for uh, over a couple of decades now. And I think when you first started it, what was crazy to me was like, you didn't even have the money lined up for the first prize and you didn't have any teams who were working on it. And of course it was related to, um, to space, which had been your passion, you know, for already a decade plus at that time. And then a decade plus thereafter, can you talk a little bit about sort of what inspired you to start the X prize in the first place? Of course, there've been several since then. Um, and yeah, sure. just how this prize exactly, you know, what's, it's like still somewhat of an uncommon incentivization method that, you know, there's VC and things like this, but prizes are still fairly uncommon and you're sort of like the most prominent person doing them. So what makes them great as sort of an incentivization, incentivization structure? Sure. Happily. So to set the setting, I'm, um, I just graduated medical school, right? I've done a master's at MIT in aerospace my fourth year of medical school, I am uh, running two companies, a, a satellite launch company uh, building a rocket um, called the Orbex, which we ended up selling the company to CTA and then Orbital Sciences, uh, and then running a university called the International Space University, which is headquartered in Strasbourg, France. And the more I'm diving into space, the more I realize that it isn't happening. All of the, it's just slow. The space shuttle is never going to get us there. 
and all of the dreams of space entrepreneurs are just manana, manana. And it's like the biggest bottleneck is how do we get ourselves into space at lower and lower prices? What's the marketplace that's going to drive us there? Um, I am given a book by a dear friend, Greg Marinak, which was the spirit of St. Louis that Lindbergh wrote as his autobiography. And as I'm reading Lindbergh's autobiography, I learned that in 1927, uh, Charles Lindbergh crosses the Atlantic, not on a whim, but to win a $25,000 prize. And I start researching prizes. And I'm like, wow, these early aviation prizes for crossing the English Channel and going from you know, uh, uh, New York to Leverge, which was called the uh, Ortigue Prize, uh, going from London to Australia, all these prizes were just they were they were funded by a lot of the uh, um, newspapers back then to create media stories and hero stories and and they worked and they worked amazingly well and so by the time I had finished reading the Spirit of St Louis I conceived of the idea of creating a prize for private spaceflight I said I want to create a prize that's going to spark entrepreneurs to build private spaceships that could take me and my friends up into space and. Because I didn't know who was going to be my Pulitzer, my Ortigue, my Nobel uh, to fund the prize, I called it the X Prize. The X was a variable to be replaced by the name of the funder. And I said, it's going to be a $10 million prize because I'd been in the space business. I understood that that $10 million was probably enough to build a private spaceship that could carry three adults up 100 kilometers, land, and do it again within two weeks. So it's going to be a simple set of rules. So that was the idea, uh, announced the prize under the arch in St. Louis without having any prize money, without having any teams, but I was able to get the head of NASA and the head of the FAA to be there for the announcement, to have 20 astronauts on stage um, to be uh, uh, part of the announcement. And we ended up, uh, it took me about, five or six years to find the money. Finally, from an amazing woman, uh, Anusha Ansari, who's now the CEO of the XPRIZE, she had just sold her company for 1.3 billion and she funded that prize. She then went on to the space station to fly private to the space station. So that prize got won in 2004 by Burt Rutan, funded by Paul Allen, and then Richard Branson bought the rights to create Virgin Galactic. Uh, and since then, We've launched a little over now $300 million in prizes. We're about to launch another quarter billion dollars in prizes before the end of the year. And uh, it's been an amazing incentive. And what we say to people is, I don't care where you went to school, what you've ever done, where you live. If you can build and demonstrate the technology to solve this very clearly articulated problem, you win the money and the world wins the benefits. So that's the prize model. It doesn't stipulate how, it stipulates what you need to do. So um, we've had prizes for mapping the ocean floor, pulling water out of the atmosphere. Um, I got Elon to fund a $100 million gigaton carbon removal prize. We had 1,200 teams enter that competition. And it's we create a giant marketplace and we we give entrepreneurs a target to shoot for, and we level the playing field where pure startups and massive companies can compete head to head, and it's meritocracy. Whoever's got the best idea wins the money.
Right. Yeah, no, I think it's a, uh, it's an awesome structure and hopefully, you know, it sounds like momentum's even picking up from 300 million that you've done to date and quarter billion new in the pipeline. So that that's awesome. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, you know, there's obviously the winners of these prizes, the few that have uh, been won. And of course there's many in progress as well. Um, but there's also a, a laundry list of super ambitious, hardworking people who, you know, end up not winning the prizes, but putting in a lot of effort and some capital and things like this. Obviously, the winner is a huge success and, and things like this. But um, the losers as well are sort of to your point, you're like creating this marketplace where there's lots of people taking shots on goal. And these projects, just because they don't win the prize, they don't necessarily stop doing what they're doing, they can go raise capital and things like this. How do you absolutely see these these sort of um, ecosystems that you're creating develop beyond just the winner? Yeah, I mean, one of the most important things we do is we create a marketplace. Um, we credential that there is a need for this and that it is possible. Um, uh, I'll give you my favorite example uh, of what's coming. So I live in California. I have relatives in Greece and all we hear about is wildfires all over the place. And um, it was about five years ago, we're being evacuated from our home. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous that um, that no one's stopping these fires before they become these conflagrations. And I had friends of mine up in um, Malibu who couldn't get insurance for their for their property because they had been burned down in a fire. And so I started off on a journey to try and create an X Prize for wildfire detection and prevention. I got an amazing uh, fellow, Dick Merkin, to put up the seed capital and it took us five years to raise the prize money uh pacific gas and electric lockheed uh the mindaroo foundation uh the hilton foundation and the gordon moore foundation funded an 11 million dollar prize and it's asking teams can you build the tech to monitor a thousand square acres if you detect a wildfire at ignition if it's two meters or larger or if it's moving Put it out in 10 minutes before it spreads, right? And and you can imagine the once that's done, the marketplace it's going to create is a true fire insurance. Instead of paying someone after their house burns down, the insurance prevents the fire from starting in the first place, right? So that's a huge market potential um, that I hope will transform wildfires so we prevent them in the first place yeah i think that's great and it sort of uh, reminds me of actually like the approach on healthcare as well a preventative approach to uh putting out fires yeah. rather than just trying to fix the problem once it's done um, absolutely i do want to uh, touch on mindsets which you know we alluded to a little bit earlier and specifically what you do and what you have done uh, or recommend to others in terms of training that positive mindset and surrounding yourself with people who sort of improve your mindset and development and and sort of curating and, and managing uh, your information diet. I'm curious, like, what do you read? What do you listen to? How do you think about what gets in, what doesn't get in, who you surround yourself with, all things like this? Yeah, so <clears throat> um, let me frame it for those listening. You know, if I were to say to you, what do you think makes the greatest leaders on the planet successful? <clears throat> you know, is it their money? Is it their tech? Is it their friends or is it their mindset, right? Whether it's Elon or Mahatma Gandhi or 
you know, Martin Luther King or Jeff Bezos, you know, whoever you want to point at, you know, the vast majority of people <clears throat> would say it's their mindset that makes them successful. They're, you know, take away everything from these individuals that leave them their mindset and they'd regain much of their success. And so if mindset is really the most important thing for you as a leader, then my next question is what mindset do you have? Where did you get it? And more importantly, what mindset do you need for the decade ahead? So I started thinking a lot about this. And uh, the next frame we're thinking about is, you know, we've been hearing a lot recently in the AI world about uh, neural nets and training neural nets, right? So a neural net is a um, modeled on the human brain. It's a, a series of sort of like digital neurons that are, are layered and you train a visual neural net to see cats by showing it images of cats after cats after cats after cats. And it begins to realize that a cat has four legs, a tail, pointy ears, et cetera. Um, and that's how you train it. And you train a kid or a dog in the same way, repetitive examples. So our brains are neural nets and we train them by, as you said, who we hang out with, the conversations we have, what we watch, what's on our walls, what we read, what we listen to. All of those things are constantly training your neural net. And so I guard my mindset in the same way that I guard my diet, right? I don't eat sugar. I don't eat high glycemic carbs. Um, and I don't drink, you know, cow's milk. I, you know, there are certain things I don't do. And then there's certain things that I do do. I try and bring in, you know, whole plants. I try and, and get enough protein through the day and drink enough water and all of those things that are pro my, you know, ingestion. And also for myself, um, I don't watch the crisis news network, you know, which is my joke for CNN. I don't have a decent one for Fox. Um, you couldn't pay me enough to have the news media feed me what they want to feed me. I mean, their job is to deliver your eyeballs to their advertisers, and they feed us 10 times more negative news and positive news because our ancient piece, of, you know, parts of our brain, our amygdala are triggered by negative news, and we remain glued. But the TV sets, but do you really need to see every murder on the planet in living color over and over and over again every 10 minutes? And it's not that the news is, at this point, fake news. It's just not a fair and balanced view of what's going on in the world. You don't hear about all of the medical breakthroughs and the scientific breakthroughs and the companies that got funded. All you hear is about the disasters and the bankruptcies and the politicians. And I just don't need that. You know, um, I'm, you know, it's not that I remain disconnected. Um, I've set up my own news alerts for things that are relevant to me. And I'll spend probably, you know, 30 seconds looking at uh, news headlines, but not more than that. I don't need to know more than that. So I am very careful about what I let in and I'm constantly focused on, because I teach this, I write about this, I put out two blogs a week uh, to my community, one on the latest breakthroughs on longevity and one on what's going on in, on uh, mindsets or exponential technologies. And so as I write and read and teach and interact, 
um, I'm constantly honing those mindsets. And again, the mindsets I care about is a curiosity mindset, a gratitude mindset, an abundance mindset, an exponential mindset, a longevity mindset, and an abundance mindset. And so, I'm sorry, and a, a moonshot mindset. And those are what I focus on. Yeah. And, and, you know, you didn't mention it as an explicit mindset, but I think it sort of is implicit across all of them, which is sort of an optimistic mindset. And I think it's very interesting. Um, you know, you're, you call yourself a data-driven optimist, which I actually hadn't heard that uh, exact term before, but it's a great one. And you describe how it's sort of enabled by um, evidence of abundance all around us. And this is the best time ever to be alive. When you hear people who are like, oh man, you know, uh, COVID and the, uh, and you know, the political unrest and all this, all these problems that people point to the type of stuff that CNN and Fox just sort of pound into your brain day in and day out, like you were saying, um, what are the first things you sort of point to in terms of evidence of abundance, where you try to, you know, get someone to take just like a little bit of a more positive view on the world that this is actually a great time to be alive? Uh, you know, where I'll take them is, uh, you know, we tend to romanticize the past. Oh, in the good old days, you know, I call bullshit in good old days when life was short and brutish, you'd work 70 hour weeks to survive and you were dead by 50. Those were the good old days, right? A hundred years ago, um, you know, I'll say, listen, would you rather live in the year 1900 or the year or today? Let's, let's begin with that. And if people choose 1900, you know, it's just, they don't have the facts. Right. Uh, in New York alone, there were, you know, um, <laughs> New York stank from horse manure and urine on the streets every day. And there was pestilence, you know, between uh, between 1900 and today, about there were 240 million deaths due to pestilence and and um, and hunger and war. And um, but by almost all standards, standards of living have gone up and to the right. And if we sit down and we look at it, um, you know, 100 years ago, 45% of kids born globally died before the age of five, right? That number has dropped down to about 4%, still too low. We've seen access to food, water, energy, healthcare, education explode onto the planet. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, these devices are, are cell phones. You know, you can have $40 cell phones uh, on the planet, which are give any individual. Now, there are no, no more cell phones than there are humans. And uh, something like 93% of humans on the planet have access to this. It's your education. It's your entertainment. It's your access to global knowledge, your access to communications, your access even to free artificial intelligence. And so we have a chance to truly uplift every human on the planet. Um, and the challenge is the hard wiring of our brain uh, is around scarcity and, and, uh, and fear, like you said. And we default to that. Uh, and we compare ourselves against the Cardassians or whomever it might be and failed to realize the extraordinary world that we're living in. We're living in a miraculous world. Um, you know, to quote uh, Sadhguru, um, who I was on stage with and said something I'll never forget. And he said, uh, you know, technology allows humanity to take a vacation from survival. 
you know, most of human history was fundamentally about surviving. And that is, you know, no, it's still the case in some parts of the world, but in the vast majority, it's not. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, that's a great quote. I hadn't heard it before. But um, I think that may be obviously sort of survival has become decreasingly necessary to focus on for humans over the course of history, but never less so than today. Um, and I think, you know, you, you see this sort of uh, crisis of purpose, I'll call it, where lots of people, especially sort of younger generations today, feel this lack of meaning and lack of purpose. They want to know, you know, what's the meaning of life? What's it all about? Asking these sort of like existential questions. And uh, it transitions nicely to another thing that you uh, talk a lot about, which is this massive transformative purpose or MTP. And I was sort of, uh, you know, I I knew you from all of the futurist and technology type stuff, but I had no idea about this until preparing for the podcast. And um, it resonated a lot with me a few years ago, basically, I just sort of from another, you know, person I respected who who was sort of talking about the importance of defining your purpose, just sort of convinced me it's like, okay, you know what? even if I don't believe I have like one purpose or may, you know, I don't know like what the value of this activity is or whatever, I'm just going to try it and just give my best to define what is my purpose. Let's say I have one and it can change over time and things like that. And so I did that and it was tremendously helpful as um, just sort of thinking about sort of the core of who I am and what I like to do and serving as sort of a filter for what to do there on. Um, yeah. So this is something you obviously advocate for quite a bit. How do you sort of drive people Deeply. to uh, find their purpose? Deeply. So, you know, it's probably the seventh mindset and probably the first one I should have mentioned, which is having a, a purpose-driven mindset. And I talk about having an MTP, a massive transformative purpose. And you can shift your purpose over life. Uh, You don't have to pick one that you're going to stick with the rest of your life. Early on, when I sort of uh, became conscious of the idea of of having, wanting, uh, enjoying having a purpose, it really was in my uh, early 20s, late teens, college to grad school was making humanity multiplanetary species. It was getting, opening up the private space frontier. It drove me. it transitioned there to around the X Prize and singularity around uh, uh, addressing and solving the world's grand challenges. And then the third, uh, and where I am right now, is serving entrepreneurs. And my MTP is to inspire and guide entrepreneurs to create a hopeful, compelling, and abundant future for humanity. So that drives me uh, in a lot of what I do. And when I'm teaching this, what I what I talk about is the notion that you need to be clear in your purpose who you want to who you want to support. For me, it's entrepreneurs, right? It's like my mission is to support entrepreneurs. And I, how do you want to support them? What are the verbs you want to use? For me, it's inspiring and guiding them. I do that through my books. I do that through Singularity. I do that through X Prize, inspiring them towards a goal guiding them towards those goals. And then what is it you want? And for me, it's I'm driven by trying to create a world which is hopeful, compelling, and abundant. And when you have a clear MTP, and it should be something that you can memorize and you can convey to anybody in a short conversation, uh, they know who you are. um, And then 
magic happens. Things become uh, extraordinary where if you're clear about um, your MTP and you share it with me, and I know that some friends over here, you should meet them, all of a sudden the world starts coming to you. So getting your MTP is important. Being able to share it publicly and proudly is important. Um, when you have your MTP, it's sort of uh, one of the most important things it does in this world of incredible abundance, where there's more and more and more opportunities coming at you. Your massive transformative purpose helps you decide what you should and should not do. If you're taking everything coming at you, you're not focused, right? Uh, a friend, Martine Rothblatt, had a great quote. Uh, she said, the successful individual says no to most things. The most successful individual says no to everything or almost everything, whatever it would be. So how do you focus what you're, what you're doing on? Well, your MTP helps you focus. The other thing is your massive transformative purpose. I think of it as a canvas upon which you paint your moonshot. So once you know your MTP, whatever it might be, your moonshots are then places where you're trying to go 10 times bigger than anybody else, right? So when my early uh, MTP was around opening up space flight, um, the Ansari X Prize was one of my moonshots there. Creating my company, Zero, Zero G, Zero Gravity Corporation, was a moonshot uh, on that. Uh, for those interested, and I, I highly recommend it, going through this exercise, I actually built an AI um, uh, that helps people uh, design their MTP and their moonshots for free. Uh, if you go to uh, moonshotplanner.com, um, just that's it, just moonshotplanner.com. You can uh, register and the AI will take you through the process of defining your MTP and step by step by step. And then once you've defined your MTP, defining a moonshot. I think every entrepreneur should have a clear MTP uh, and a moonshot. It can be true for a company to have an MTP or a family or a philanthropy or a country to have an MTP and a moonshot as well. Yeah, it sounds awesome. And uh, definitely encourage people to go check that out. It's been, uh, you know, some version of this has been very important and uh, impactful for me. And I think this is, sounds like a, a much better structured and uh, much more thoughtful and intentional way to go about it with the help of AI as, as uh, sort of goes everything these days. And it's very helpful for in a, in a lot of ways. But um, I want to close on uh, something, you know, you're, you're your recent book that you co-authored, Exponential Organizations, talks about uh, how sort of organizations of the now are different from organizations of the past. They can make things mm. 10 times better, faster, cheaper. And uh, it's sort of, you know, it it flies in the face a little bit of like this, uh, you know, the, the purpose and the focus uh, and contrasting that with how much you're able to do between all the companies that you work on and the books that you write and things like this. And of course they're all hyper-related and, and focused within, you know, basically that purpose that you talked about, but how do you manage um, to get so much done and to have your hand in the creation of so many companies? And I'm curious, maybe there's sort of some elements uh, from, from the organizations in that book that you spoke about that, you've been able to use over the last couple of decades since this has sort of become a phenomenon in order to just be so tremendously, you know, impactful and productive? Well, let's see. Uh, 
I am able to do what I'm doing by virtue of a couple of things. Number one, I'm very much passion and purpose driven. Um, it's the only way to get stuff done. I'm. It's an emotional driver, right? When you find your MTP, um, one of the things is to realize that your your massive transformative purpose is fueled by emotional energy. It's fueled either by positive emotional energy like awe and excitement and desire to, to see something happen or a negative emotional energy like I refuse to let this happen to anybody else. I'm going to solve and slay this issue. Um, and sometimes both, right? My my, uh, I have a developing MTP around, around health and longevity and it's really that positive energy of desiring to add decades of healthy life. It's also this energy of like the healthcare system sucks and I'm going to slay it and destroy it and put it out of its misery, out of our misery, right? Reinvent that. Um, so that emotional energy has got to be at the core of anything you do. If it isn't, uh, then it's going to be work and it isn't going to succeed. Um, and if you've got that emotional energy, when I come to from project A to B to C, it, it's a renewal of that energy. But the other thing that's most important is I know what I'm good at. And I'm great at coming up with the idea, pulling together the founding team, capitalizing it or raising the capital for it. And then I hire a CEO to run that. Uh, so I'm not the CEO of multiple companies. Uh, at most, I've ever been the CEO of two and I try and make it one. And um, either take a role as chairman or executive chairman or vice chairman of those companies across the board in the things that I do. But Anusha Ansari is running, um, you know, the XPRIZE Foundation and Julie Vanamarungan is running my Abundance 360 uh, and Bill Cap is CEO of, of Fountain Life, right? And, and those are individuals who my job as executive chairman in each case is to help them succeed, uh, to look down the pike in the road and do some of the visioning, but help them as the CEO. And it's that balanced. So the other thing I would just mention is I didn't get here from day one, right? When I was early on, I was, uh, you know, founder and CEO or founder and chairman of a company and just getting that successful, whether it was my first one in college, Students for Exploration Development of Space, or then International Space University. I wasn't doing multiple things in parallel in the beginning, but once you've earned the right, you can then paralyze, go paralyze, not the right word, go, go in parallel uh, on multiple um, uh, opportunities. Uh, Exponential Organizations is a book. Um, the idea of an EXO was really Salim's, um, and then I developed it with him and co-authored this second book, Exponential Organizations 2.0. And it's the notion that there's a new generation of companies. These companies are not like the companies of 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, they are operating in a very uh, digitized, dematerialized, demonetized, democratized uh, uh, situation. And uh, they're operating, you know, 10 times more effectively than the traditional companies. Uh, 
And so the book EXO 2.0 really looks at um, the attributes of these companies. Uh, one thing is that every one of these exponential organizations has a, an MTP. Um, they've got their agile, they're using AI algorithms wherever they can. They're building communities and crowds. They're using dashboards. There's there's an MTP plus five internal and five external attributes that characterize these EXOs. And in the book, we lay out examples and what you can and should do uh, to either build an EXO from the beginning, which is the easiest way to do it, um, you know, an experimentalist data-driven company, or if you have a large company already, it's much harder to retrofit it into an EXO. Uh, your job instead is keep running your company, which is hopefully profitable, and then begin an EXO on the on the edge uh, that is really uh, uh, born of a new type of DNA, a moonshot type of DNA. Right. Well, uh, I know we are coming up on time, so I think we will have to wrap up there. But I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, want to, you know, want to respect it and wrap up uh, ahead of the hour. But thank you so much again for for coming on. I'm really grateful for uh, everything that you're doing and can't wait to see what's ahead from uh, the X Prize on longevity and health span to uh, whatever else you have in store. I'm sure there's a ton of it. So thank you for coming on yeah. and uh, great speaking with you. My pleasure. And folks who want to follow the work, uh, if you go to diamandis.com, uh, I put out two blogs a week there. Um, I also, the stuff that I do in longevity, uh, if you go to diamandis.com slash longevity, I have a, a book called Peter's Longevity Practices that you can get for free. And it lays out everything I've ever learned, exactly what I'm doing in each in each area. And then uh, check out, you know, moonshotplanner.com uh, and build your MTP and your and your moonshot. Um, it's the thing that's given me the greatest joy in life is is going after those and, and hitting them or just the journey of going after them is fulfilling in itself. All right, Jake, thanks so much. Mm -hmm.